Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. What if you were wearing something sexy? What if you were drinking? What if you made the first move? No matter what, sexual assault is never your fault. Support is available 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Call 1-800-656-HOPE or visit RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. This is Christina Ricci with RAIN, reminding you it's never your fault. Brought to you by RAIN and this station. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to the second half of Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys or check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And I'm also on Instagram. Check me there, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Um, and if you want to send me an email, please do. Um, I'd love to hear from you any comments or suggestions, concerns. Um, you can email me, Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com. Wow. Well, today, I'm just back in love with Paul Robeson right now. Like, there is no man that can compare. I will not be in love with anybody else for quite a while. And you know why? It's the fault of Dr. Redmond. She wrote this wonderful book, Everything Man, and it's just, like, wow, amazing. I believe this is her on the line here. I'm going to check here. Good morning, Dr. Redmond. Good morning. Hi, how are you? I'm doing quite well. How are you? I'm in love with Paul Robeson. (laughs) I'm so glad to hear that. I am too. I mean, wow. Like, what am I supposed to do now after reading this? I mean, you compare him to the mountains and the water and his voice and the hologram. I'm just like, ah. Yeah, that's kind of the effect that I think he has on people. Once you know him, it's hard to know anyone else. Very amazing. And a lot of deep research you did. I appreciate that. Um, It is not light reading, um, but it's beautiful, beautiful writing, almost meditative in a sense, I felt, in reading it um, because of the different connections you made about him, his body, uh, his body of work. Um, you know, where you go from play, you know, you, she has different chapters in the book. So we'll, we'll talk about that, but this isn't um, her first book. Um, and she's also a teacher and um, she's a musicologist. Is that how I say it? A musicologist? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's yes. It. So um, what made you decide to write this book about Paul Robeson? Tell the audience. Well, I had been introduced to him as a college student. I actually was fortunate enough to take a seminar with his granddaughter, Susan Robeson, when I was in college. And then um, he, you know, kind of stuck with me a little bit. I wasn't, you know, I was only 20 at the time. So, you know, not paying as much attention as I should have. But in graduate school, 
um, I wrote my dissertation about music, um, protest music in the African world, and that became my first book, Anthem, and he was a figure in that project. And in doing research for it, I kind of reintroduced myself to him and became thoroughly and completely invested in this person, although I never intended to return to him as a subject. I thought I had written about him in that book, and that would be fine, but he's one of these people, and I've heard this from other people I've had conversations with, that once he grips you, he never leaves you. He's always Mm. in your mind somewhere, and it was the case that I was doing research for another project, and I kept encountering him either in poetry or other scholars talking about him or seeing his um, presence in a number of different exhibits that I had witnessed, and so once I recognized that there was a pattern emerging. I figured, well, instead of fighting this, let me just go with it and see if there's something there. And sure enough, there was plenty to say. Now, you're um, at UCLA, correct? You're still there, Professor, at UCLA? And you're doing global jazz studies. Is that you're, you're still focusing there? Global jazz studies and musicology, yes. Musicology. Now, do you play any instruments yourself? I was a I was a singer in my previous life. I'm not very <laughs> practiced anymore, but formerly so, a singer. Yeah. So that's the connection there. And um, now, what is this name? Everything Man. Tell the audience um, why did you name the book uh, Everything Man? Oh, sorry. So some music so, came in. <laughs> um, that's okay. Um, I actually got that language from Talib Kweli, who sampled a song um, from a group called Daybreak in the 70s called Everything Man. And that language is a reference to all of the different forms that you mentioned earlier that I kind of track his presence through. So the fact that he was revealing himself as poetry and literature, as sound, as the built environment. So, you know, the numerous homes that are named after him, student centers at various college campuses, the mountain peak that's named after him in Kyrgyzstan. You know, he was just taking shape in all of these different ways. And it, you know, it's a bit tongue in cheek to call him everything man, but early in the project, I have quotes from various people, including his life partner, Islanda Good Robeson, who said, you know, that everybody wanted him to be everywhere. He was everything to everyone. And, you know, so that language to me, um, while a little cheeky, actually, I think does some justice for trying to think about how big a presence he was during his lifetime and since. Yeah, I really like you broke it down. So let's start at the beginning. You you talk about his voice and the breadth of his voice and how it was able to move around the globe even when he wasn't. Um, that was really um, actually sad for me. You know, it was sad that he yeah. could not move around after a certain point. I really was, like, angry in reading, you know, that section. Um, tell the audience a little bit about why he could not move around, and um, but yet he still was able to move around with his voice. Talk about that a little bit. Right. So his voice is really the whole foundation of the project. And I think, you know, there have been folks who have written about him as, kind of an icon of the labor left or an icon of Cold War persecution. 
Um, but I really wanted to get back to the thing that he identified as the most essential element of himself, which was his voice. And so that becomes kind of the way that I'm able to talk about him appearing in all of these different forms. But it was a really crucial element of how people were able to still communicate with him and he communicate with them was through these recordings that he would send around the world. So he was in, by 1949, uh, an enemy of the state that the U S state department actually targeted him as um, a radical, as a, a rebel. And he was out in the world talking about um, independence for colonized African nations. He was talking about the oppressions faced by black Americans. He was talking about um, the dispossession of labor in the United States. So very much a champion for the rights of working people. And the state department took issue with that. And in, in 1950, they revoked his passport, refusing him travel anywhere outside of the contiguous United States. And so from 1950 to 1958, he could not travel and um, it basically crushed his career. He had made a huge name for himself abroad. And so this, at that moment, under McCarthyism, um, the second Red Scare, he was not only unable to travel to his international audiences, but because of the fear-mongering that was happening in the U.S. federal government, um, was really losing all of his opportunities to perform in the U.S. as well because they accused him of being a communist. And at that time, and perhaps in this time, that is yeah. uh, an enemy position. Um, so it really, he lost 95% of his income within a decade. And um, they sought to actually silence him, but he was able to develop these do-it-yourself recordings with his son in New York City and uh, send them to fans all over the world who continue to champion his voice and fight for the reinstatement of his passport, which was successful ultimately in 1958. Now, he had this amazing relationship with the people in Wales, and I did not know about that. I am not as studied on Paul Robeson as I, I, I guess I thought I was, so I'm glad that, again, you wrote this book. It really enlightens people about the aspects of himself and um, one of the things when he was not able to move he made a call and sang at their yearly festival tell the audience about their yearly festival and um, that that moment when he was able to move with his voice even though he couldn't move physically yeah it's a really interesting story the whole long relationship he's had with wells is super interesting and just so compelling um, in traveling there to do research for this project. It's still very evident to me that they revere him. It was a rarity that I would meet anyone even in that moment, which was only about two years ago, three years ago now that I was there. Most people still knew his name, and that is just not mm. the case in the U.S. And so he's been really well-preserved there because he was such a heroic figure and in large part due to his support for the miners who were really the backbone of Welsh culture until the industry collapsed in the 1980s. So the miners are kind of the most revered workers in the national history of Wales. And he was a big champion for organized labor. And so he would often sing for the unions. He would speak to their issues from his platforms around the world. And um, during the period of his passport revocation, they were still wanting him to participate. So the Welsh people have a very kind of rich national choral culture. 
both amongst the unions where the mm-hmm. um, unions will have their own choirs, but then also national kind of competitive choirs. And so they have these singing festivals called the Steadfast which happen annually and they used the unions would have their own and then there'd be the national. Now there's only the national because the unions are, are mostly obsolete. Um, but during the union steadfast, as well as the national steadfast, he was being called to perform. Um, and because his passport was revoked, he couldn't physically be there, but they took advantage of what was then newer technology, meaning the landline telephone Um, So being able to make transatlantic phone calls was a new innovation in the early 1950s. And they figured out how to develop a cable from New York City where Robeson was stationed into the um, miners of Steadfod in Porth Call, Wales. And there were um, 5,000 people in the auditorium waiting to hear his voice in Wales, another Mm, couple mm, of thousand outside hoping to get in. And he sung to them for about an hour. He sung to them, the miners sung to him. And there's this brilliant recording of it that talk that, you know, demonstrates this, um, this intimacy that they shared with each other, as well as having dialogue with one another. And so it's this really fantastic moment of thinking about how he's re- he was resisting all of the restrictions imposed upon him in an urgent bid to continue being with the people who mattered to him and them really fighting for him to be there. Yeah, I understand based on your book that he was the, one of the first non-Welsh-speaking people to be allowed into this. Is that correct? Yeah, so at the Nationalist Deathfod in the late 1950s, when he was able to return to travel, Wales was one of the first places he went, and he was invite, an invited guest at the Nationalist Deathfod, and he was the first non-Welsh person to speak on the first day of the festival. So the first day of the festival traditionally was only spoken and performed in Welsh, And he got on stage and sung spirituals and sung along with the Welsh in their language. But that was the first time it had ever, that English had ever been spoken and performed on the main stage at the Nationalist Deadspot on its first day. Now, he not only sang in English and Welsh, but he sang in Chinese and Russian. He, um, based on your book, he never sang the anthem, the American anthem, but he did sing the Chinese anthem and the Russian, and I did listen to it because just getting in the mood as I was reading, I was also listening to Robeson uh, on Spotify. <laughs> and That's to, the way to, to do it, there. yeah. Yes, and it was really when he started singing the Chinese, it, like I didn't think he wasn't Chinese. You know what I'm saying? The right. power of it, like the, the conviction behind the way he was singing, it was like, no, I know this. I got this. Don't worry about it. It wasn't, a, wasn't there was no uh, faltering. You know what I'm saying? Um, he was there. And also with the Russian song, um, even though now we are about hating Russia because they messed with our uh, elections. Um, right. Still in his song, though, was like, wow, so powerful. And it was a, also, again, another song of the um, downtrodden. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. That's where he connected, and yeah. I think that's why people appreciated him, because he, was, he wasn't above anybody. You know what I mean? He was like, look, I'm here, that's and right. we're all fighting this together. Um, and, yeah. and the way he really tried to make it global, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, 
And that's another element of the language of everything man is that Mm -hmm. he really considered himself an every man, that he was not better, as you said, than anyone else. He wasn't smarter. He didn't know more about the world. He just had a different platform. And so he wanted to announce other people's ways of living, other people's ways of knowing and talk about how valuable those things were. But it's, it's, um, part of the way he was able to do that so successfully is that he spoke in their languages. He was a fantastic linguist. He studied language intensely, not only for his vocal catalog and repertoire, but just for the sake of being able to communicate with people as he traveled the world. And so he, he was conversational in dozens of language. Really amazing. I can tell you that language is really a, a door opener myself. I've, I went to Poland for about five weeks, I was there doing theater um, in, in another life, in another place. Um, and I've traveled to many other countries, and I've tried to learn their language. And let me tell you, people appreciate it. They will open the door. They will help you find something. They will do stuff that you would think a stranger wouldn't do because you're trying to communicate with them in their language. Um, and yes. they respect you. Uh, more and 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 I've taught my daughter that and she laughs you know especially sometimes we'll get into a cab or something and she's like oh god here goes my mom she's gonna start saying something (laughs) (laughs) you know but then they you have a great conversation now the second chapter is talking about him (laughs) you're right the second chapter is talking about him at play and um, Mm -hmm. people may not know he played uh, baseball football um, shot put um, and mm-hmm. what was the other one? Um, I'm missing one. Basketball. Baseball, football, basketball. He played mm-hmm. four different sports. I mean, yeah. I mean, he, and did he, I mean, it seems like did he not have an ego? Was he not um, some sense of arrogance at all? Did you find any of that in the research? I did not. He absolutely had a sense of presence about himself, especially in his later years. He knew when he was right. So there was that Mm -hmm. sense of confidence about him. But as far as him being, you know, a four letter, four season athlete, valedictorian of his Rutgers graduating class, Columbia law school graduate, none of that produced any sense of ego in him because he very much revered and followed his father who instilled in him the fact that this is just what we do. This is who we are. Black folks have to know better and do better than everyone else in the world just to be counted half as equal. And so he Mm. really took that to heart. And so he pursued all of his interests, all of his passions. He made sure he had his degrees, but there was never any sense of superiority about him. He always understood himself as part of a community of people, none of whom were less than he was. And it really is a big tribute to his father, who had actually escaped from slavery um, himself. And so that was a huge lesson for him. His father was a slave, you know, so to think about that. Um, yes, is, is and tremendous now he became a pastor. Kind of yeah. smart. Yes, exactly. And instilled in him the fact that you are you just strive for excellence in whatever you do. That's it. You're not better. You're just doing the work that needs to be done. One of the great things is because my background on theater, I really like the play chapter um, and this idea of playing. And um, sometimes people not even realize that you're playing. 
um, that you mm-hmm. have this language. I remember I had a relationship with this guy, and one of the things I liked about him is that he could just slip into this play mode. You know, like we'd be anywhere going down the street, and he could become a character, and we'd be in a restaurant and doing these different things. And, you know, as an adult, you know, like you say in the book, we don't play. But play is right. good for adults, too. They even have coloring books now for adults. That's you know, right. Like, it's, it, it, it's crazy. You know, we're going, like, backwards, but to help us stay strong. Um, you, you bring up in this play section um, how there were several plays that were written um, about him, but they didn't celebrate his voice. Talk about those a little right. bit. Yeah, it was a really interesting thing for me to notice kind of across the one-man shows that have been developed with him as Muse, that there's very little attention paid to his voice or of him being a singer. Um, so not only is there an issue then when casting comes along, on those rare occasions when these solo characters do sing, they often don't cast singers because the singing is just not a prominent part of the story. But it, it is a way of, um, in a way, really undermines his power as a, an historical figure due to the fact that they don't pay any attention to his music. This is really how the world was introduced to him was through his voice. And this is what he considered his most powerful talent. He loved being on the stage. He loved being in films. But singing is what he did his whole life. And so for that to be absent in so many of the one-man shows that have developed is a huge um, loss for audiences because they really don't end up knowing who he is unless they know his voice. Yeah, you talk, talk about how he um, is almost like a chemist on the stage, a scientist with his voice and knowing really how to manipulate it to, I guess, um, get the most impact out of it. And I think that's really shown when he worked with his son and was able to, okay, you won't let me move. You won't let me go someplace. I'm still going someplace and using technology, you know, to, to move. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. Because people so now, still wanted to hear him. They were eager for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm eager now. That's why I was like listening while I was reading <laughs> the book. Now the crazy thing story, one of the crazy stories is this statue that got, that disappeared. Don't talk, about, talk to the mm-hmm. audience about the statue of, uh, that disappeared of him and, and why you think it disappeared. Yeah, so um, during the 1920s, Robeson, as he was gaining notoriety for himself in Harlem, became kind of a muse for a number of, um, a number of artists, playwrights, photographers, but also for sculptors. And there was a sculpture made of him by Antonio Salem, an Italian-American artist, which was his full body nude. And this piece, um, which thankfully we have a photograph of, ultimately in cast form disappeared, that both of the original casts made of the sculpture, which had been sent to various locations in order to make new sculptures for exhibition, disappeared. And so it's a really curious story about how and why this happened. There's very little information about where they might have gone or who might have Mm. received them, who might have been inclined to destroy them upon receipt of them. Um, So it's an interesting opportunity to open up the question of, of both how he was curated and how he moved around the world in all of these different forms, but also to think about the fact that even as early as the 1920s, he was already under surveillance by the FBI. So it's very possible that, 
um, they had some hand in the disappearance of these sculptures. I think so. I mean, I'm a conspiracy person. I was like, they took it. <laughs> they paid somebody. Yeah, exactly. They trashed that. They did not want to see that. I mean, the, the statue represented certain things for African-American community, but for them, I can imagine, first of all, he was nude. Okay, that's it. Right. The whole sexuality, you're, you're taking our white women or raping them and all that right. whole back, that back talk or inside talk. Um, but then he was giving praise it looked like in terms of i saw the picture um he's looking upward and holding his hand um like you said he wasn't arrogant you know like right. the pose would be different like if he had his hands on the side of his hips and stuff like i'm here i'm challenging you or something like that so uh, it was um it was crazy that that happened but i believe that they took it they took it <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the interesting thing about it. I I believe that fully myself, but the pose of the statue, as you're saying, is really important, you know, that it's nude and all of these debates around, around interraciality, around integration, around sexuality, as you're saying, but also the fact that he was, his body was in extension, he was reaching towards the sky. So he wasn't being arrogant, but he also wasn't cowering. And that's what, mm-hmm. you know, the powers that be wanted to see. They wanted to see black people meek and mild and beleaguered. He was not that person. And he was becoming the type of person already in the 1920s who could think really critically and in political ways, but also inspire people to do the same. And they had to stop him at all costs. Yeah, I mean, he, like the language, that totally crossed barriers um, as well as his voice. Um, but then people, one of the things you talk about is like his present life um, and his uh, past life, his future life. It's like all these different places and he's there all at once. Almost, I, I need a sci-fi movie. Like I need Paul Robeson to be like in a sci-fi movie. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> like, he's, like, Please, maybe, let's make yeah, it like happen. Like Doctor Who. Yeah. Type of thing or something. I mean, seriously. And um, I, I don't know. That's just. That's just a child in me because I was a Doctor Who fan. Now we That's go into a great the environment. Idea. Uh, well, look, I put it. In, I put it out. I said it out into the universe. Everybody's listening. You heard That's it right. <laughs> Real That's quick, right. we only have a couple minutes left, but um, you talk about the environment in him. One of the things you compare him to, like the redwoods, um, trees. Um, talk a little bit about this. Um, these analogies with Paul in the environment. Yeah, so Mary McLeod Bethune, who was an educator and advocate and great um, kind of activist for black folks, um, kind of set him up in her kind of um, descriptions of him as the tallest tree in our forest. That's how she described him. And this is kind of the metaphor that is stuck with his name throughout his lifetime. And I found that it was not just it was not just a saying, he actually has become those things. So there's um, a tree, there are numbers of trees that are dedicated to him on Rutgers campus. Um, there are seeds, um, Russian tomato heirloom seeds that are named after him. Um, so he has become part of the land, part of the natural environment, but then the, in its most spectacular form, he also has a mountain peak named for him in Kyrgyzstan, which yes. um, mm. he and Angela Davis 
are the two who have mountain peaks in this range named for them in this country. And so it was really curious to me to see him um, being so um, so highly thought of, Honest. so revered yeah. that people are naming their their natural environment after him. And also to think about that as evidence of his permanence, that he's not going anywhere and we should um, pay attention because he still has things to tell us. And one of the things, um, the star, people, uh, actors and performers get the star on Hollywood and they wouldn't let him um, get a star. I was, th- that was another point. I was really angry. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, yeah. um, this is a performer's performer. Um, you know, you know, he sings and he acts. Um, I don't know if he dances, but also, you know, the funny thing is going back to, um, the sculpture, the, he, there were pictures of him when he was nude, but they were very tasteful. And it mm-hmm. also came to me, he was not ashamed. No. Like, he was not ashamed of himself because in order to get nude, you got to be not ashamed of, you know, who you are in your body. Um, and they were very tasteful, and he, he was not ashamed. And I think that was also something that made the people, uh, the powers that be, angry. But talk to the audience a little bit about the star, why he couldn't get the star. Well, I mean, the star was really just residual resentment against this person who had been labeled a communist and and ultimately lived the last 10 years of his life pretty quietly in Philadelphia. And so there was both this mixture of a quick amnesia, but also a purposeful amnesia that the U.S. was very deliberate in wanting to erase this person from historical memory. And so when the Actors Guild and others were activating and organizing for him to receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, there was resistance from the board of reviewers and they couldn't give any language to it. The only language they could say is, well, he must not have met the criteria when in fact Mickey Mouse is getting a star at that time. (laughs) The Bee Gees are getting a star at that time. And he's someone who's worked in all of the industries and has been a star in all of them. And they refused until people started to organize, including the workers who lay the stars, who physically install the stars in the sidewalk, they started to raise questions about why Robeson was not being included. And at that point, they reevaluated and decided upon receipt of further evidence that he now was honorable enough, worthy enough to receive his star on the Walk of Fame. And it's one of my favorite moments. We recently celebrated Stevie Wonder's birthday, of course, and he was present at the laying of that star and was one of the people celebrating this milestone achievement. Um, I have to tell you, um, almost every day going to work, uh, my other job I have, I uh, passed the Paul Robeson mural in uh, Philadelphia at 45th and Chestnut Street. And yes. um, there are many a moments that I I just stare and like I just I was before I read your book this is just before just staring like who are you like where did you come from you know what I mean almost mm-hmm. like did mm-hmm. an alien come down like there nobody else like you will there nobody will there be no one else you know what I'm saying I think Ossie Davis Ossie Davis for me was. Um, I thought very close to to him, but but just not even the breath is just the global. That's the global thing. You know what I mean? The global yes. impact is is really one of the keys. Um, well, I want to thank you so much for writing this wonderful um, educational book. 
um, takes us, like I said, around the globe, but also through different universes, if you will. Um, thank you very much uh, for coming on the show this morning, and I, I just really appreciate it. I'm going to be giving away copies of your book. So the oh, audience, excellent. I hope thank you, you. Yes, no problem. It's a great book. I'm not going to have you on if I didn't think the book was good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but thank you so much, um, and I wish you continued success uh, at school and also with your literature. Your next book, maybe you can come back on. I would love that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Again, you can follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Also, Saturday mornings with Joy Keys on Facebook. And check me out on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Again, I'll be giving away copies of Everything Man, the form and function of Paul Robeson. So please check out the social media, follow so you can find out how to win. Um, Everybody, you have a wonderful weekend, and uh, please be safe. I know we're dealing with this coronavirus. Can't wait till we get past a big hump somewhere. Um, But please take care of washing your hands and uh, covering your face and things of that nature. And uh, don't think just because you know somebody that maybe they don't have it. You could have it and not know it because you could be no symptoms or something. So just take care, and I'll see you guys next Saturday. Thank you very much. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.